Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the Surrey tenants who received a shocking letter from their landlords. Pay up or move out. That is the bottom line here with the tenants who received a 40% rent hike demand. I've got two of the tenants standing by here. Now, wait a minute here now. I thought we had rent control in this province. How is that possible? Remember what John Horgan said, the previous premier? Here's what he had to say. Let's listen. An inflationary increase in rents would be debilitating for 1.5 million British Columbians. We're not prepared for that. We're going to continue to work with the landlords of B.C. to find other ways to engage with them, to assist them with costs. But this year's uh, rent increase will be limited to 2%. Okay, 2%. 2% the maximum rent hike. How can these tenants receive a demand for a 40% rent hike? Let's discuss now with two of the tenants affected here. Linda de Gonzalez on the line. Linda, thank you for coming on this morning. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate I appreciate it very much. I really want people to know about this. Okay. Thank you, Linda. Also, Rod Hill is on the line as well, another tenant in the building. Hi, Rod. Hi. Okay, thank you to both of you. Okay, Linda, let's talk about this rent demand that you received. First of all, how old are you? You're a senior, right? Yes, I'm 70. You're 70, and I, I know you're on a, we had a brief chat yesterday. You You are on a pension, right? You're on a fixed income. Yes, that's right. I'm, uh, I'm on CPP and OAS. Okay, how long have you lived at the Winsome Place Apartments there on 120th Street in Surrey? Uh, for 21 years. Tw- 21 years. To, okay. I moved here in 2002, just after my husband died. Okay. L- Linda, tell me about the the rent hike that you're facing here. How, when did you find out about this? Uh, well, I got my notice on the 24th. And uh, it was slid under my door in the, um, I I guess, just around maybe 6 o'clock in the evening. And uh, um, I opened it up because it's never good news, you know. And uh, um, I, like, my stomach just dropped. I, I, my legs wouldn't hold me up. I sat on the floor and I I just cried. I thought I was the only one who got such a notice, and it wasn't until I was talking to the other tenants, some of the other tenants, that I learned that there were 30 of us who got this this uh, this notice. Now, to be clear, he doesn't say, I'm going to evict you. He says, um, I'm going to sell the apartment, and... Uh, and your the new owner may choose to move in, and then you'll be evicted. So yeah. he himself is not threatening to evict. But the building, you see, this is an unusual situation because the building is strata titled. Yes, but it's never it's never been sold. There's, there's never been an apartment um, bought or sold in the building. And, okay, how much? And how much sorry? is the rent? How much is the rent hike? How much more do they want? Um, he wants to raise my rent to fourteen hundred and fifty dollars a month. From I'm, right now, I'm paying a thousand and eighteen. Okay, so you're looking at more That's than right. like a like a forty percent rent hike there. Let me go to Rod Hill. Rod, how much is how much is your rent demand? 
I have I pay a thousand twenty eight currently, and they want me to pay fourteen hundred and fifty. Okay, so you're facing a similar similar demand. Rod, tell me about your situation. You're, I know you're a senior as well. You're a pensioner too, right? Yes, I'm seventy seven years old. Seventy seven. What What about this rent hike now? Can you afford this? No, no, no. I'm on a fixed income as well. I, I have OAS and CPP, and that's it. And uh, so you know, I I'm stretched as it is. I don't. I can't afford four hundred dollars a month. So I don't know what I'm going to do. Just Anyway, Linda, can you can you afford this? No, no. When I when I first got the notice, I thought, well, maybe he'd be willing to negotiate, and I could squeeze out, you know, one hundred and fifty or two hundred dollars a month, and see if he would accept that. But when I found out there were thirty of us, I realized that this wasn't this wasn't my pro like it wasn't just my problem that it was something that we needed to get together and and. Uh, uh, and try to find a solution for, you know, yeah. like I, I get it that 2% isn't enough for the landlords, but um, I, he has recourse. Like there is a process through the um, residential tenancy branch where he can apply for a special rent increase and he hasn't done that. Yeah. So I don't think it's because he doesn't know about it. I mean, it's possible, but I don't what, think so. What are you going to do, Linda, if you're faced with this rent hike? If the landlord won't negotiate for a lower increase what are, and you're faced with a 40% rent hike, what are you going to do? Well, uh, I, I don't have any, I don't, sorry, I don't have anywhere to go. I, uh, I've been scouring the internet ever since this happened. And, uh, I have my my big problem. You see, is in addition to being poor, I have uh, I have birds, and uh, nobody will take pets. So it doesn't at 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 any price. It seems, and so, um, so yeah, I uh, um, there's waiting lists, uh, years long waiting lists at um, BC Housing at the seniors um, housing facilities. There's uh, co-ops which i could probably do except there's like not all of them are accepting applications and the ones that are have a three or four year waiting list i am a part basement suites here in surrey are going for sixteen seventeen hundred dollars a month yeah i i'm yeah. i i don't know what i'm going to do um yeah. sincerely it's a it's a scary, scary thing, and I, I don't have anywhere to go. I have children. My daughter lives in Ireland with her husband. Well, I'm not going to move to Ireland. Mm-hmm. My son and his family, they live in Burnaby, or sorry, they live in Vancouver, or maybe it's Burnaby now. Oh, well, anyway, they live in Burnaby, but it's a small place. They don't have room for me. Rod, let me go back. I really feel, Linda, like you're, you, you know, your emotions coming through the, the radio here, and I could, I really feel for you. Rod, let me go to you, back to you here now. Now, for people who are listening and thinking, okay, right now you're paying around a thousand a month, and the rent increases to fourteen hundred a month, so that's a big percentage rent increase. There's yeah. a, a lot of people in Vancouver are paying a heck of a lot more than that for an apartment, right? What would you what would you say like four like I think there's a lot of people out there would probably be 
quite happy with a $1,400 a month rent. What would you say to that? Well, that may be, but, you know, I I moved in here uh, 15 years ago. I was paying 800 and something, and now um, I, over the years I've had small increases. And so, like I say, I'm now up to 1028 but, you know, four, $400 increase, I just can't afford it. I, yeah. I've got... I've got to look around like Linda. I've been looking around and, and, uh, I, I need to find an alternative, uh, situation that isn't expensive. And it looks like I might have to move out of the city, you know, out of the city and maybe out to the valley somewhere. I don't know. I've got to, I got to look. I'm in, I'm in a situation. I have a son and a daughter who both have families and I might be able to move in part time with them for a week or two, but, I don't want to burden them with my issues, and I'm just trying to find a place that uh, that I can afford. And you know, like Linda was saying, if it was a couple hundred dollars a month, well, maybe we can do that. But I, I just can't do four four hundred dollars. I mean, fourteen hundred dollars is the the majority of my uh, of my pension. You know, I've got little to eat, <laughs> and I got to pay phone and and hydro, and you know, it's just it's impossible for me to even think of. So. Linda last, Linda, last question for you. You mentioned you're trying to appeal to the, the landlord to be a bit reasonable and negotiate. What has the landlord said to you? Is, is the landlord showing? Go ahead. I'm so sorry. Uh, we haven't contacted the landlord directly. Um, and uh, uh, we've been trying to work with, with uh, the RTB and the uh, uh, Tenants Resource Advisory Center and uh to to try to uh uh to try to come to some resolution um the the landlord is listen what he's doing is perfectly legal it is perfectly okay to ask for an agreement okay yeah. but the agreement the request isn't just a request for an agreement it's a threat you know if you don't agree to this these are the these are the consequences and it, it, to me, it's just a thinly veiled threat of homelessness, you know, agree to this or, hey, you might be on the street. Um, I don't know if he actually means that, like if he actually does intend to sell 30 suites out of the 72, I think, in the building and how that would work. I don't know. But like, I don't know if it's a if it's a real threat or not, but I I. um uh, I, I have no way of knowing that, and so I'm just acting yeah. as though it is. All know? right. Okay. Linda, Rod, I want to thank both of you for coming on here today to tell your story. I hope things work out for you, and you. I really appreciate both of your times today. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. All right, I heard my conversation there with two tenants in the Surrey building uh, facing a 40% rent hike. Linda Day Gonzalez, Rod Hill, they are both seniors, pensioners on fixed incomes. Let's check in with Robert Patterson now, rental rights lawyer, tenant resource and advisory center. Please to welcome him back. Robert, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, Robert, what do you think of this situation here? I mean, this is uh, this is a tough situation for these folks. I was, Linda was almost in tears here with me a moment ago uh, describing or what's happening with her, your thoughts. This is legal, right? They can, the landlord can do this. 
so yeah, I think ultimately it's def- it's legal for a landlord to do to number one ask a tenant if they'll agree to pay a higher than allowable rent increase, and it's also legal for a landlord to sell the rental unit uh, to another buyer at any time. What makes that sort of threat of sale more real in this circumstance is that the building is already zoned as a strata, so the landlord can sell the individual units, and if they're sold to someone who wants to move in uh, or who wants to take p- pretend that they want to move in, they can issue a two month notice for purchaser's use. And right now, tenants that so that process for how we handle two month notices is really, really insufficient in sort of making sure the landlord actually wants to move in. So I think tenants are very fearful of receiving that kind of notice and might lead them to sort of potentially agreeing in light of that kind of threat. Okay, so let's let's take that one at a time here. So let's start, sure. first of all, with the, the voluntary part of it here. So it is legal for a landlord to say, okay, I know that we have rent control in, in British Columbia, that the maximum rent increase is supposed to be 2% but I'm asking you to voluntarily pay more. They're allowed to do that, right? The Residential Tenancy Act does allow them to do that. There's, they still have to abide by the timing requirements of rent increases. Uh, so they have to, cannot be more than, uh, sorry, less than 12 months since the last rent time they were increased rent. But yes, they are allowed to ask tenants this. They're allowed to do that. Is that happening a lot? I mean, you know, the landlords have got input costs. Their costs are going up too, right? I think we do hear it happening a lot from tenants. Oftentimes it happens in the context of, in similar context where the landlord says you have to agree to a higher rent increase or else I'm going to move a, fa- a family member in or, or at least claim a family member will be moving in. Um, and yeah, the, the fact that tenants don't have sufficient legal protections means that they feel like they have to agree to those. Okay, and let's talk about the other part of this. So let's say it is legal, obviously, for the owner to sell the suite. These are strata units, as we talked about. So it is legal for the owner to sell the sell the suite or move in himself? Like, how does this work? How do you, if you sell the place, you can legally evict the tenant? Is that right? So the sale itself doesn't allow eviction. The only thing that allows eviction is if it's sold to someone who actually intends to occupy the unit and issues a two-month notice that says that they or a close family member, uh, so the owner or a close family member, will be the ones occupying. Um, but like I said earlier, right now, the, the sort of procedure for how, even if a tenant wants to challenge that, the rules around those notices are not sufficient to, to, you know, to make sure that we're actually making sure that landlords really intend to move in. We see lots of cases of landlords claiming that they're going to move into units they've just bought. And even in cases where it doesn't make any sense, you know, multimillionaires buying dilapidated three-story walk-ups and claiming they're going to fill all the units with themselves and their rich family members, you know, We've seen times that they'll show up to a hearing and just say that, despite all the tenants' protestation, that it makes no sense, and still eviction notices will be upheld. So there are some additional rules we have to have in place to strengthen protections here, because right now, you know, I think landlords feel like they can get away with anything with a two-month notice, and the RTP is often letting them. Right. I really feel for these people because they're these are poor people. Like Linda described herself as a poor person. She's getting by in a a fixed income here. She can't afford a 40% rent hike. Uh, you know, on the other hand, right? They both told me they're both right now paying a little over a thousand a month, which is in this in this market seems like a pretty great deal. And the rent increase would go to fourteen hundred a month. And I know there are people in the city who would love to find a place to rent for fourteen hundred a month. Does that make a difference? We just got a minute left here. Go ahead. Sure. Legally speaking, not really. I think for what we're sort of seeing here, though, is um, that there really is nothing out there for people on fixed incomes. Uh, there's nothing out there for low-income tenants. Uh, that eviction in this case likely means being pushed out of their communities, being pushed into similarly expensive housing somewhere else. And you know, this is a this is sort of a failure in general of our ability to solve the housing problem. We've left it up to the market, and we've failed to publicly invest in housing that can be secure, long-term, affordable housing for people like this, and also for all 
all kinds of tenants. Everyone is hurt when we fail to invest in public and social okay. and non-market housing. Uh, yeah. Hey, Rob, Robert, thanks for coming on today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right, here we go now with time of use billing by BC Hydro. Now, the utility has officially applied to the BC Utility Commission for permission to do this here now. Time of use billing. Now, it would be voluntary for people who want to opt into the system if this goes forward. Time of use billing. How does this work? Well, essentially, they would charge you a higher rate for electricity consumed at peak times. So right now, that would be in the evening hours, 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. That's Those are the peak hours for energy usage. So you'd pay more. You'd pay more during those times. Now, if you consume electricity in the, in the low usage hour, yeah, typically overnight, you'd pay less. That is time of use billing. Now, I remember, boy, you go back 10 years when BC Hydro first brought in smart meters, and I remember at the time saying, okay, here we go. Here comes the time of use billing because that's basically what smart meters are for. And the government of the day, a different government, different party in, in charge, of course. Like, no, 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 we're not, we're not doing this. Don't worry. We're not going to do time of use billing. But here we are. So Hydro now applying for this. Now, is this a good thing? I think for some people it would be a good thing, for sure. But will it cost a lot of people more money? Got Joel McDonald standing by to discuss. Let's have a listen to Susie Reeder here, a spokesperson for BC Hydro and time of use billing. Let's listen. We know that the way our customers are using electricity is changing. And one of the things that they want are more options. And it is an optional time of use rate. And we know it might not be ideal for everyone. Okay, so it might not be ideal for everyone, but maybe some people will like this. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Joel McDonald. Joel is an analyst, energyrates.ca. He's an expert on electricity rates in Canada. Very pleased to welcome him. Hey, Joel, thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me. Okay, Joel, can you explain this? Maybe you can do a better job explaining this than me. How does this time of use billing work? Well, I think you did a great job, but I, okay. I can expand <laughs> on it a little bit. Okay. Um, Electricity to produce uh, has very different costs depending on what the overall load on the grid system is. Um, there's base load power plants that produce electricity relatively cheaply. They're on all the time. But as we go up on grid demand, we have to start turning on peaking plants, which are very expensive to operate. Mm -hmm. So the theory behind time of use rates is that those that are taking demand from the peaking plants have to pay the higher cost. Yeah. The overall right. goal is to flatten the provincial load so that we're using relatively similar amounts of electricity throughout the day. Right. Your question right. yeah. of, it, who, you know, is this good, is this bad? It really depends. But the way BC Hydro set up the current system is it's going to be very hard for it to be advantageous. So there's a 5% increased cost for on-peak, like you said, from 4 to 9 p.m. And then there's a 5-cent decrease from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. So in order to see a cost savings, you would have to shift at least 50% of your demand between the high point to the overnight point. Um, although people may want to do their part to shift demand, I think it's going to be really hard to shift 50% of your demand from those two time periods. 
Yeah, okay, the that's only group. I was just the going to say that, that's a really, really good breakdown of the mathematics of it here. Sorry to interrupt you there, Joel. Let, let me no. ask you this. So, so yeah. the, the peak times right now where they would charge you more, 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. This Correct. maybe sound like a dumb question or an obvious question, but why is that the peak time? Like that's when people are what? They're doing their dishes, they're watching TV, they're, they're using more power in those, ti- those time periods, correct? A hundred percent. And it's also the overlap period. So there's still some people at work, at manufacturing plants, at sawmills. The lines are still running. There's a lot of industrial and commercial applications going, as well as people have started to go home, start cooking dinner, start doing laundry, things of that nature. So you have both the residential load and the commercial industrial load on the grid at that point. Right. So that's the peak time, 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. And then when you look at the non-peak time, so the overnight from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., the power would be cheaper then. So I guess what you could do a lot of, you know, we've got a lot of smart appliances now, like our dishwasher at home. You can program it to turn on overnight, right? You could you could plug your car in overnight, charge up your car overnight. Is that how you would is that where the savings are? Like if you can do that at, at those hours instead of at the peak hours? That's where the potential savings are, and and that's the theory behind it. And and car um, EV charging is one where it may work out for you. But the big caveat is the discount just isn't as great as we see in other regions. So, for example, in Ontario, the peak time rate is 24.9 cents a kilowatt hour, and the overnight rate is 2.4 cents. So wow. there's a incredible savings. You don't have to shift very much of your load and there's no increased penalty for the on-peak time. Uh, in BC, there's that increased penalty that you're paying when you're in the peak period and just a, a minor decrease in the off-peak period. So you'd really have to shift a huge amount of your load to the overnight rate to see a savings. Yeah, yeah right. Wow, that's a way better deal in Ontario. That's amazing. It's it's similar in in Alberta as well. Um, Their daytime rates can go as high as 50 or even 99 cents a kilowatt hour. And their overnight rates could be as low as two or three cents. Wow. Yeah, that's a dramatic difference in what's being proposed here. For sure. Speaking to Joel McDonald, energyrates.ca time of use billing by bc hydro do do people in these other provinces where this time of use billing system has been introduced joel do do the customers tend to like it is it a popular system it is um for those that like you said have those smart appliances have those evs and have the wherewithal to shift their load um i also think you know to be successful in ontario or in alberta you only have to shift 10 15 percent of your load whether in bc you'll have to shift 50 plus percent um so i think people do like it in in other regions but i caution people in bc just to be careful and me and recognize that the the way that their product is set up is different than those other regions right right and when we take a look at the demands on the system currently and going forward we've got very aggressive targets here to electrify our transportation network, network pr- predominantly like switching to electric vehicles. So the federal mm-hmm. government, very aggressive targets to go to a 100% electric vehicle sales. British Columbia as well at a provincial level, we've got aggressive targets here to electrify vehicles. So there's going to be more, like what, what is the impact of that? There's going to be more demand on the grid, correct? 
significantly more demand on the grid. It depends on the region, but you could see 20 or 30 percent overall increase in grid demand through EVs. And these incentive programs to try to shift those charging periods are one of the ways that they're trying to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. And when you take a look sort of going forward, are we going to have enough power here across the country or at a provincial level? Given all the demands on this grid that we're seeing, and of course we've got new, more people moving here every single day, we've got lots of immigration going on. I mean, there's, people need more power. And I just sure. wonder, do you think so, we're going to have enough? I think we'll always have enough. It's The question is, what is it going to cost us? There's always lots of power generation companies, as well as the, the ability to import power. Um, so there will be power coming into the grid. The question is, you know, how much are BC residents going to have to pay for that? And I think it could be substantial. Okay, I think a lot of people might be looking at this thinking, I smell a bit of a rat here. Like, could this be a, a cash grab by BC Hydro here, especially with the way that you've broken down the math on this thing, Joel? What do you make of it? Is this sort of, does this seem like a bit of a cash grab to you by BC Hydro? I think it's a way to shift the cost uh, onto consumers. I don't know if BC Hydro is going to put more dollars in their pocket at the end of the day, but an average BC consumer's bill could be going up. So a bit, bit more of a, um, a, a shift than a cash grab, in my opinion. Right. And Hydro right now is saying that, well, this will be a voluntary buy-in here, okay? So if we get approval to do this, we, if we go to this time of use, it, it won't, it, you have to opt in. It'll be optional. There's a lot of people thinking that, well, okay, it might be optional now, but it could be mandatory in, in the future. So if people are thinking about this, I, uh, people should think long and hard about opting in for this, I imagine, though. If, if they can't shift that much of their power usage to overnight, off-peak hours, you might be just setting yourself up for a higher bill if you opt into this, would you not? That, that would be our opinion. I think it is going to be very difficult to shift that amount of load. That's not to mean that there isn't going to be an advantageous product out down the road, but for this iteration, uh, I would definitely hold off. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking the same thing too. And what about overall power, like electricity rates in British Columbia compared to other other provinces? Do do you know? Because often BC Hydro will say, "Well, we've got we've actually got." pretty good deal on energy here. We've got all these legacy big major hydroelectric dams that are producing clean power for us here, uh, and our rates are pretty good. Are, are BC's rates pretty pretty competitive right now? They, they absolutely are. Yeah. Uh, nationally, they are one of the lowest. However, you hit the nail on the head. It's because there's a lot of legacy power generation or hydro plants as well as legacy infrastructure. BC hasn't had a massive influx of, of residents, which has required the distribution system uh, to be built out. Uh, so the distribution transmission and distribution costs in BC are significantly lower than a lot of other provinces. Um, and we would say that's an advantage, but we have to be careful on these new programs and how you know new load is brought onto the grid so that that advantage isn't taken away. Okay, Joel, thank you for your analysis today. I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. All right, let's talk about Pierre Polyev's 19-room taxpayer-financed mansion now. It's called Stornoway. 
the official residence of the leader of the opposition in Ottawa. It's located in the fancy Rockcliffe neighborhood of the capital. The assessed value of the home, $4.2 million. Remember when Preston Manning, back when he was the leader of the Federal Reform Party, he, he previously said that he would not move into Stornoway. He said that it should be turned into a bingo hall and the proceeds used to pay down the national debt. Then he moved in anyway. He took some heat for that. Paulie, I've taken some heat here for moving into Stornoway here. The conservative leader is relentless in his criticism of excessive government spending. Okay, but how much does his mansion cost taxpayers here? What about his private chef and his private driver? How much does this all this cost? We've got Franco Terrazano standing by to discuss. Have a listen to this here now. This is NDP MP Charlie Angus speaking in the House of Commons the other day about Polyev's home bills at Stornoway. Have a listen. You know, I was really struck by my honorable colleague talking about taxpayers being left to hold the bag. Let's talk about the bag that taxpayers have to hold for the leader of the Conservative Party's digs. Yeah. Uh, 19 uh, rooms, a 19-room house, 9,500 square feet. He has a private chef and servants. Wow. Who's paying for that? Not him. It's a taxpayer. They have two water meters at his house. One was $4,107 in April. Then there was a bill for $7,556 in June. I mean, what is this guy doing with all that water? $1.4 million in repairs over 10 years. But then get this, $170,000 a year just to keep it clean for him. And if you ever get invited to his summer parties, oh, my God. Canadians can't afford this guy, and he's got the gall to tell senior citizens that they shouldn't be able to get free dental care. I'm not uh, buying that. Okay. You started to hear some conservative MPs in the background get their back up over that there. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Franco Terrazano, Federal Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Hey, Franco. Hey, thanks for having me on today. Okay, thanks a lot for coming on. Okay, I, I find this interesting. I mean, we hear a lot about 24 Sussex Drive, the official residence of the Prime Minister, which is basically so run down, it's practically in a position, should be condemned. But let's talk about Stornoway. So Polyev is living there. What do you think about this? I mean, you heard the NDP run down all the bills to run this place. Is this a good use of taxpayers' money? Oh, it sure isn't. No, I mean, come on. We shouldn't be we shouldn't be given the person who comes in second place a nineteen room taxpayer funded mansion. You know what I mean? Come on. I mean, I live in Ottawa. I've met with members of Parliament. There's lots of meeting space here in Ottawa. We don't need to give the leader of the opposition, the person who comes in second place, a taxpayer funded mansion. Look, there is a ton that we can dive into this because. It's not just the politicians who are to blame. I mean, they are for sure. Don't get me wrong. It's also the National Capital Commission. We really got to put the finger, point the finger at them as well. But, like, I think we got to revisit that Preston Manning proposal. Hey, let's turn <laughs> Stornoway into a bingo hall and let's use the money to pay down that $1 trillion debt. Okay, I'm taking a look at some of the bills here for Stornoway, the official residence here for Apoliev, and you heard, you heard that NDP MP outline some of these costs here, especially the cost for for water. Like he said, one water meter. There are two water meters at the home, and he said one water meter recently ran up four thousand dollars in cost, and the other one was seven thousand five hundred dollars. Why is it? 
Like, how much water is he using there? What's up with that? <laughs> well, I don't know. I've never been to Stornoway, uh, okay. full disclosure. So, so I don't know. Look, there's there's two places to point the blame at here, right? Um, number one, yeah, sure, Mr. Polyev, right? He look, he said a lot of really good things, right? Right? He has been, uh, you know, holding the government accountable when it wastes money. Yeah, yeah. let's give him credit there. But if he really wants to be the, 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 the true fiscal responsibility guy, you know, the party that is the champion of the taxpayer, well, then you got to lead by example, right? Which means all conservatives should have turned down that pay raise that they just took. But it also means, hey, maybe we don't need to have our, our leader of the official opposition in Stornoway. But the, the other per, uh, group that we have to blame is the National Capital Commission. Okay, so they are the, the organization within the government that oversees these official residences. They're essentially a uh, Parks and Recs board on steroids. Uh, but look, the NCC is like the contractor that your buddy warns you never to hire because they're only good at one thing, at ballooning the taxpayer tab. Let me give you a concrete example of everything that is the NCC. The previous Conservative Party interim leader, Ms. Candace Bergen, it cost the NCC – $19,000 to move Miss Bergen within the same city. Wow. That's going in when she moved into Stornoway, you mean? That's correct. Yeah. Nine, it cost yeah. the NCC $19,000 to move her into the same city. You know, I've done a cross-Canada uh, move before from Calgary to Ottawa. It cost me way less than that to essentially yeah. move across the country. It's costing them $19,000 to move a person within the same city. That's ridiculous. Okay, let's talk about some of the other official residences we have. Stornoway, official residence of the Leader of the Opposition. Let's talk a little bit about 24 Sussex Drive, the official residence of the Prime Minister. Of course, Trudeau does not live there. This thing is is a disaster. Uh, it's full of mold and rats, and it should be torn down. It sounds like it's been, it should be condemned rather than repaired. Trudeau not living there. In fact, Trudeau was asked if he thinks he would ever live in 24 Sussex Drive. He used to live there when he was a kid, when his dad was prime minister. He kind of grew up there. But listen to what he says here now. He's asked, do you think you will ever live at 24 Sussex Drive, the official residence? Listen to what Trudeau says here, and I'll get your thoughts. We are looking into how uh, to maintain that particular piece of infrastructure. I am... Uh, you see yourself living there at any point? No, not really. Uh, it's uh, it needs an awful lot of work, and uh, I but think someone's got to make that decision. Right? Somebody does, and we've uh, turned to Maybe experts, you? and we've turned. Well, you know, there's a real challenge in this country of uh, anything that a prime minister decides for, uh, you know, that they could potentially benefit from. That's one of the reasons why the house has been run into the ground uh, since since the time I lived there. Uh, is that no prime minister ever wanted to spend a penny of taxpayer dollars on upkeeping that house? So I'm fairly resigned to not living in that house for the entire term. Okay, Franco Terrazano, your thoughts. I thought that was an interesting comment that he said past prime ministers didn't want to take the political heat for repairing the place, and that's why it's uh, it's in the condition that it's, that it's in. Your thoughts? Well, one of the reasons that there'd be so much political heat is because nobody's willing to challenge the NCC when they come back with ridiculous estimates. I mean, they say they estimate it's going to cost them like $40 million to repair 24 Sussex. Folks, $40 million to repair the thing. Like, how is that even possible? You know, Chad Kroger and Avril Lavigne, they bought their L.A. mansion for over $5 million. You know what I mean? Um, uh, Like, Corey Perry paid $7.2 million for his mansion, and the NCC says to repair 
24 Sussex is going to be $40 million. So look, I mean, uh, a prime minister or politicians wouldn't get as much heat if they're actually willing to push back on the NCC and say, hey, hold on a second here. You can't come back to us with a tab that is as big as the moon. Okay, let me give you another example. The NCC, they think it's going to cost like $175 million to repair six properties. $175 million to repair six properties, and then another $26 million every single year to upkeep the properties. That's crazy. You know, the prime minister has a cottage retreat. It's called Harrington Lake, and it costs the NCC more than $700,000 to renovate the kitchen. Like, that's what people pay for a home. All right. Talking about official residences for federal politicians, you got 24 Sussex Drive for Justin Trudeau. You've got Stornoway for Pierre Polyev. Uh, let's go right to your calls. Franco Terrazano is my guest. Bernie in Cash Creek. Hey, Bernie, go ahead. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good. What do you think? Uh, well, we pay our politicians very well they don't look after the seniors they don't look after uh, mental health in this country and i think they get enough benefits without us paying for their expensive trips to england or or wherever they go um, on the taxpayer dollar okay so do you think like a guy like pierre polyev should pay for his own his own digs definitely Okay. Definitely. Thank you, for, thank you for the call. Franco, how much does Polyev get paid? All right. So a backbencher, the base salary is $194,000. Uh, yeah. that, was, that was after the fourth pay raise since the beginning of the pandemic. Right? So remember that, folks. All you listeners out there, I'm sure so many people struggled. Pay cuts, job losses, maybe worried about losing your business, maybe had to take out an extra line of credit. All members of parliament gave themselves four ra- uh, pay raises the base salary is now $194,600. Trudeau obviously makes the most, most his pay. Uh, his salary is just under $390,000 a year. John on the North Shore. Hi, John. Go ahead. Okay, John's gone. Let's go to Bob in Nanaimo. Hey, Bob, go ahead. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh, we're going to pay for Stornoway anyway. Whether or not someone lives there or not, it's the official residence. It will be charged to the taxpayer. And the uh, the NCC, is, as somebody noted, is hugely inefficient and yeah. will cost us money. Whether or not somebody's living there, it will cost us. Okay, thank you, Bob. Well, that's certainly the case with 24 Sussex Drive right now. Is it not, Franco? It's still costing taxpayers a ton of money that it's empty. Yeah, the last I heard about 24 Sussex, uh, the annual cost is about $150,000 a year. Okay, and and hey, I just heard something that's absolutely correct. The NCC is extremely inefficient. Like I said, the one thing they're good at is ballooning the tab. Uh, Look, the NCC either has to figure out how to come back and actually give us a proper budget that's something that is manageable, or we should fire the NCC, either one. Okay, star 9898 is the number on your cell. Mike in Vancouver. Hey, Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I guess they should uh, get rid of uh, uh, Stornway. But I had another quick question. Um, what ha- what, do you have any idea what the Prime Minister's upcoming trip to England is for the coronation is going to be? Like, where is he going to stay at the same hotel or maybe a Holiday Inn or something like that? <laughs> do you know, Franco? 
<laughs> no, I no, I don't. You know, I would hope that there are he's not going to be staying in the River Suite that had that complimentary butler service. You know, you know oh. that you're really staying in an expensive hotel when you could have saved money by staying in the Shangri La. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That that trip that Trudeau made. How much did that room cost that he was staying in? The one with the butler. Six thousand dollars a night for five nights, wow. costing you, dear taxpayer, thirty thousand dollars. Wow, six thousand a night. What is the what is the just what is the justification for that? Or I know there isn't one. He was there for the funeral of the queen, right? That's why he was there. Yep, that's correct. But yeah, they didn't yeah. give us a justification. They wouldn't even tell us who it was for months. Yeah, remember? I mean, the yeah. TTF had to launch a legal challenge to force the government to come clean with taxpayers. Trudeau knew he was going to lose in court, so the day when Biden was coming to town. He finally decided to fess up and, and hope that the story would get buried because the president yeah. was coming to that, That's when they coughed it up. Yeah, 6000 a night. Richard in Surrey. Hi, Richard. Go ahead. Yeah, I just don't think you should be paying for any politicians living. Well, well I, can hard, I can hardly hear you here. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to put you on hold for a minute and go to the next call. There, you got a bad connection. Rod in New West. Hey, Rod, go ahead. Hey, hi. I just want to say... Seven hundred grand on a kitchen. Does he even realize or care how many homeless people that would house? Forty million dollars on on renovating Sussex. Uh, so, yeah, seven hundred thousand for. Okay, where was that kitchen again, Franco? The seven hundred thousand dollar kitchen. Lake. It was at yeah. Harrington Lake, which is the uh, prime minister's cottage retreat. Remember, we get we have three official residents for the prime minister: Rideau Cottage, Harrington Lake, and uh, Twenty Four Sussex, which is another big part of this problem, right? The prime minister doesn't need three different mansions. Okay, but Harrington Lake. Now, you correct me if I'm wrong. I, I know it's kind of a you know a getaway where he can decompress or whatever, but. They have official meetings and stuff there too, right? Well, I'm, they might, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm oh. sure they do, but I, I still don't think that means that taxpayers essentially need to have uh, be funding three different huge properties that the prime minister gets to go to. And yeah. and to the caller's point, I mean, 700k is a ton of money. Think about all the other priorities it could go towards. And the reason the NCC is getting away with this is because they're not facing any political pressure. Right. If you had some politicians that said, hey, NCC, you better do a good job, a proper job. or We're going to stop funding your budget. I bet things would start changing around here. Squeeze in one more call. Mike and Big White. Hey, Mike, you got 30 seconds here. I think we should make. Okay, I think we're, lo- we're losing Mike up on the so ski hill Canada, there, it sounds like. I, I don't think we pay our leaders of our the opposition or our prime minister enough money. If we want the best of the best treat them like best of the best and oh. make it Canada proud. Okay. They're underpaid, Franco. Franco, we got 20 seconds. Yeah. I, I don't think they're underpaid. I mean, Trudeau's getting $390,000. Let's not forget that they've gotten pay raises year after year, after year, after year, after year. And I don't see their performance getting any better. Franco, thanks for coming on today. Hey Mike, thanks for having me on. All right, let's talk now about one of the world's most notorious drug lords, and I'm talking about Mexican drug lord El Chapo. He is now locked up in the Supermax prison in the United States, doing time there, likely will never get out. Now, what has happened since El Chapo was incarcerated? Well, 
It looks like his kids have taken over the family business. The sons of El Chapo, known as Los Chapitos, they have taken over the family drug rackets now, including the fentanyl trade and fentanyl that is flowing into the United States and into Canada, too. Now, American authorities are on the hunt for El, Los Chapitos now, the sons of El Chapo. Got Douglas Century standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this report here now from ABC News. Sons of the world's most notorious drug lord, the U.S. Justice Department says the so-called Chapitos took control of the Mexican Sinaloa drug cartel when their father, El Chapo, landed in prison. From there, U.S. officials now say the four sons only amplified El Chapo's brutality and used their force to fast-track an international network for a lab-created poison disguised in drugs. The Chapitos pioneered the manufacture and trafficking of the deadliest drug our country has ever faced. And they are responsible for the massive influx of fentanyl into the United States. Yeah, a lot of that fentanyl coming into Canada there as well. That voice you heard at the end there, Anne Milgram, Chief Administrator of the U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration. Yeah, they're going after El Chapo's kids here. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Douglas Century, investigative crime writer. Highly recommend his book. He's the co-author of Hunting El Chapo, Taking Down the World's Most Wanted Drug Lord. Very pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Douglas, thanks for coming on today. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for doing it once again. So tell me about the El Chapo's kids here, Los Chapitos. Who are these guys? Well, it's a little complicated family dynamic. Chapo's had three wives, and he's never really divorced any of them. So his first wife, Alejandrina Salazar, they're still legally married. So he's got two sons by her. One is called Tocayo. His name is uh, Ivan Archivaldo Guzman. Tocayo just means namesake. It's like uh, junior. And a second son, Alfredo Guzman Salazar, by, these are by Alejandrina. These are guys who are really flaunting their wealth, even on Instagram, call them narco juniors, buying like bat wing cars, Lamborghinis, really flashy, even I'm talking about when their dad was alive. Then he had a second wife, Griselda, and the eldest son from Griselda was a guy named Edgar. He was going to be there, apparent. He was gunned down uh, in a very famous shooting by mistake, it looks like, in a cartel war in, in 2008, right in the heart of Culiacan. So Edgar was the heir apparent to the throne. Uh, in the vacuum, he has two younger brothers. One is Joaquin Guzman Lopez, who goes by Huero, which means a light-skinned guy. And then the one you've heard about, Ovidio, or the, yeah. the mouse, Raton. So they, they worked independently. They were two sets of brothers by two different uh, moms. Chapo was very dependent on them when he was kind of locked in these uh, safe houses. And But um, they both ran kind of their each each set of brothers worked as their own little drug, drug trafficking organization, but they would all meet with their dad at this duck hunting place. And that's how the DEA started to attract them. So what's interesting is he probably has hundreds of kids because nobody knows how many women he's been, been with, but they're two sets of sons. They've got a video now. And yes, they are known as having moved the cartel away from the traditional cocaine into a much easier uh, drug to manufacture and right, much more deadly, which is fentanyl, because all oh. you need are the, the precursor chemicals, as you know, just need to come in from China. So, uh, you know, what's going on right now, they've got these labs. And when they say labs, what I've researched is it just could be a guy with a barrel stirring up the chemicals. And it's so deadly. Yeah. Appar apparently, sometimes they'll even take, you know, a captured rival and have him inhale the fumes just to see. And if he dies, then, you know, they've got a good batch, right? 
So oh. they're pumping this stuff. Okay, yeah, so, I mean, okay, Douglas, speaking of on that point, let's listen to the DEA chief here again. So this is Ann Milgram here, head of the Drug Enforcement Agency, on the precise point you just touched on here. So let's let's talk about how how brutal how brutal these cartel leaders are, how they will test their drugs on, on victims here before they ship it to Canada and the United States. And you're going to hear her say some remarkable things here, and then we'll get your thoughts. So this is the head of the DEA. Let's listen. In Mexico, they fed their enemies alive to tigers, electrocuted them, waterboarded them, and shot them at close range with a 50 caliber machine gun. These are people who gave fentanyl to a man, watched him die, and then sent that same batch of fentanyl to the United States. They know that they are poisoning and killing Americans. They just don't care because they make billions of dollars doing it. Okay, that's the head of the DEA there speaking about the sons of El Chapo, you know, feeding their enemies to a tiger. I mean, this this stuff sounds like it's out of a movie, but it's true, right? Well, yeah, I mean, that made the headlines. Chapo at one point kind of had a zoo with tigers and stuff. There are, yeah, they, if they have wild cats, I know the sons were known to, to like to co- collect wild cats. It makes sense. You have a hungry tiger. You might just say, hey, I'm feeding you to the tiger and you really do it. Hey? Um, they're brutal people. The the drug that they're manufacturing, fentanyl was actually, you know, created for actual medical usages for, you know, palliative, palliative care and obstetric. It's a it's hundred times more powerful than morphine, right? So it's kind Coming across the border, I mean, the U.S. is now saying that every year, 70,000 more more people die of overdoses from fentanyl than died in all the Vietnam War and the Iraq War. So it is a crisis. Um, a lot of people, I mean, you know, it's not just people in the street. Tom Petty died of fentanyl overdose. Prince died. They're look, People are looking for an opiate. They're looking for something to help their pain. And they don't realize that maybe this knockoff, you know, because they're sometimes pressing them into drugs that look legitimately, legitimately like other pharmaceuticals. And they just OD because it's so much stronger. So it really is a crisis. What I think is going on, the reason for all this, you know, Garland and, and the DEA saying, well, let's go after these guys. I don't know if you saw Lindsey Graham, the Republicans, because there's going to be a presidential election next year. They were talking about let's 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 declare these cartels terrorist organizations and go in with the military, which, of course, is not going to happen. Yeah. I mean, once and there's been a bunch of that saber rattling. The president of Mexico came back and said, it's not we're not producing fentanyl, which is a lie. But uh, he said more like it's your problem. Look at your overdose problem. And the, the truth is, is even if you take the Chapitos out of it, these four sons, there is a huge uh, demand in the United States, Canada. Like I saw there were four ODs in um, fentanyl ODs in Ontario a couple of days ago up in the Northwest Territories. It's a horrible crisis because people are looking for for painkillers and they're not realizing how strong they are. But even if you take these Chapitos out of the picture, somebody's going to supply it. Since it's so easy to get the chemicals and stir it up in these pots and, you know, the reality is it's a lot easier than trafficking in cocaine or poppies where you actually have to cultivate them. This is a kind of very, very simple way to and and very, very profitable. So, I mean, I don't know. As a a culture, we've got to deal with the pain consumption issue. I mean, opiate uh, abuse shot up during the pandemic. So, you know, it's coming across the border. We can blame these guys and say they're horrible and they and they torture people. But also, uh, why are we using so much uh, painkillers? Why are all these celebrities looking outside of the medical prescription 
you know, field to get stuff to help their aching knees. You know, I mean, this is what Prince and, and Tom Petty and many, many other celebrities, Mac Miller, the rapper, I looked at, what did he actually OD of? Oh, it was fentanyl. But he didn't yeah. know he was doing fentanyl. I think people are taking drugs um, in Vancouver. I heard even some of the cocaine has fentanyl in it. Oh, you're sure. Taking, sure it if does. If you're taking street drugs and you don't know what's in it, yeah. that's how you OD on this stuff because you have no clue if they've cut it with something that it just might stop your heart. Right. Um, right. Well, that's why we're getting we had seven overdose deaths a day here on average in B.C. Hey, Douglas, we just got two minutes left here. Let me ask you about the, the Chapitos here, the sons of El Chapo on the, uh, the the United States wanted list here. Will the United States get these guys? Do you think they could be extradited to the United States and end up in jail here just like their dad? Well, the first, Ovidio, who they captured, remember, with the big shootouts you and I talked about, he's already in a in an Altaplano prison waiting an extradition date. He'll come. Uh, the other ones I saw, DEA post wanted posters, you know, and they said 10 million. Once the rewards get to 10 million, you'll get caught. I mean, it's just there's they've got a target on them. So, yeah, I, I, I think they've become the poster boys for the fentanyl crisis. And one by one, the pressure will be on, especially if you've got... Uh, lawmakers on the Republican side say, we'll go with the military. You know, you know who really runs drug trade? The politicos in Mexico are the ones that know who to capture and when to capture and how to capture them. If the pressure gets strong enough, they'll capture all, all of them and they'll all be extradited and they'll, they'll be the poster boys for the fentanyl crisis. And I predict that the amount of consumption will not go down one bit, oh, unfortunately, right. you know, yeah. it, but, but you know, you've got to have uh rule of law there is a reason to capture people doing this stuff but somebody will fill that vacuum drug trafficking okay. abhor, abhors a vacuum and and people want to use this stuff so unfortunately we've got to we've got to look at our own uh, culture of of um, uh, opiate abuse to understand why it's so profitable douglas as always thank you for your time today i appreciate it great thanks mike Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.